This is the Stories from 1916 podcast. Using first-hand accounts and archive material, we tell the less well-known stories of ordinary men and women who did extraordinary things during Ireland's revolutionary period. The Walsh brothers, Tom and Jim, were Irish volunteers. In the previous podcast, we covered their story through their training and up to the outbreak of the Easter Rising. Tom's granddaughter Fiona reads from his witness statement. We pick it up back again in Clan William House at Mount Street Bridge. The house had a strategically important view of Northumberland Road across the Grand Canal in Dublin's leafy Southside. A small volunteer force of just seven men occupied the building. They immediately set about fortifying it against attack. It was quiet at first. I went to the basement in search of a coal cellar. I had an electric torch. When about to leave one of the rooms, I saw what I thought was a man hiding, and I called hands up twice. On the third challenge, I still got no reply and switched on the torch. You can imagine my surprise at finding it to be a dressmaker's model. I found the coal and put what I could carry into the blanket and carried it up to our window. I put it across the sill and covered it with rugs. We found it very hard to keep our eyes open for want of sleep, so we agreed to go to sleep in turn for one hour each. The stillness of Mount Street was weird. Not a soul passed, but in the distance there was considerable rifle firing. Wednesday afternoon came, and British soldiers began to appear at the far end of Northumberland Street. These members of the Sherwood Foresters Regiment had been brought in as reinforcements, their training cut short. Many of them had not fired live ammunition before, and some thought they were in France. I saw a man in English uniform running from Percy Lane along Percy Place and up the steps of a house. I fired from the first time from my hoth gun, and for that matter from any other rifle. I do not know what happened to me or how long I was unconscious. In the excitement I did not heed the lectures and did not hold the weapon correctly. The result was the butt hit me under the chin and knocked me out. When I came to, I discovered that a large piece of the granite windowsill had vanished. I had received a good lesson, and for the remainder of the scrap I remembered it was a hoth gun I had to deal with. On looking towards Percy Place, I discovered several of the enemy looking for cover. I fired again and again until the rifle heated so much it was impossible to hold it. I heard Jim blazing away overhead and went up to see how he was doing. When I came down again, there were three bullet holes in the window shutter where my head would have been had I not gone upstairs. Wave after wave of soldiers marched down the road. The officers pressed them forwards again and again. Other battalions were taking alternative routes into the city and incurring minor casualties. Although there were other less well-defended bridges over the canal, General Lowe insisted that his men continue to advance on the whistle, as they had been trained to. We kept on blazing away at those in the channels, and after a time, as they were killed, the next fellow moved up and passed the man killed in front of him. This gave one the impression of a giant human khaki-coloured caterpillar. Those that managed to get under cover of the bridge both from Northumberland Road and Percy Place, now attempted to cross the bridge, led by an officer. They charged in small groups of about 8 to 12, but they didn't succeed. They went down on the bridge again, and again they made the attempt, but did not survive. By now there was a great pile of dead and dying on the bridge. There was a lull in the battle, while members of the Red Cross cleared the injured off the bridge for treatment. From the moment the first civilian got to the bridge, not one shot was fired by either side. 
and when the last civilian was out of sight, the firing started again, and the bridge was rushed as before, but with the same result. Again the bridge was filled with dead and dying, and again cleared by the civilians, who now had a white sheet to carry the wounded on. During the latter fight, Paddy Doyle would say, Boys, isn't this a great day for Ireland? And little sentences like this. He was very proud to live to see such a day. After some time, Paddy was not saying anything. Jim spoke to him and got no reply. He pulled him by the coat and he fell over into his arms. He was shot through the head. We told Dick about him and we three said a prayer for his soul. In our window, we had a small red covered settee as an armrest. This was on fire and Jim used a soda water siphon to extinguish the flames. He then put it to his lips for a drink and was handing it to me when it was hit by a bullet and burst into pieces between us. Dick Murphy was now very silent and I turned to him and touched him, but he was gone to meet his maker. Though they had such success holding off the attack for so long, the British line was creeping forward until some were across the bridge and a few had reached Clan William House. Our Mauser ammunition was now exhausted. I had about 12 rounds of 45 revolver ammunition and Jim had about 10 rounds for his 32 revolver. The house was smouldering in several places. The smoke and fumes were shocking. It was now about one hour before dark. We realised we could stay no longer and prepared to leave. While doing so, poor Reynolds stood up on the drawing room landing to fire the last shot. Whether he got his man or not, we did not know but he fell dead in our midst. We knelt and said a prayer for the repose of his soul and also had our last look at poor Dick and Paddy. May God have mercy on their souls. Up to this, not one of the enemy got within 20 yards of Clan William House. They suffered shocking losses. Their official figure for killed and wounded was something over 200, but I am sure there was much more than this lying along Northumberland Road on the house steps, in the channels, along the canal banks and in Warrington Place and there were several high-ranking officers among them. The casualties were so great that I, at one time, thought we had accounted for the whole British army in Ireland. What a thought! What joy! What a day! But a lot of their losses was their own fault. They made sitting ducks for amateur riflemen. But they were brave men and, I must say, clean fighters. The situation was untenable for the volunteers and they began to plan their escape. What were we to do now? We had barricaded ourselves in, leaving no line for retreat, not even a line of communication. We went to the basement and there was a door leading into a yard. This we had barricaded with kitchen furniture. In the door was a small window about a foot square. We burst out the glass and I lifted Jimmy Doyle out first, then Jim and Ronan, and I next crawled out myself. Tom and Jim Walsh were immediately on the run from the authorities. They ran down the lane behind Clan William House and climbed over a shed. Trying a basement door, they discovered a lady's coat and a tram driver's overcoat. They made good their escape, but they had to spend the coming months hiding out. This continued until the release of the prisoners from Frangoch in December, and we decided to be released also. We did, and what a welcome home we received. I do not know where all the people came from to welcome us. Such handshakes and even kisses. I do not ever remember the likes before or since. 
Tom ends his story here, but he promises to fill his children in on his subsequent experiences in the War of Independence. While Tom went on to raise four children, Jim never married. He never quite recovered from what must have been an incredibly traumatic experience. Many thanks to Fiona Kavanagh for reading her grandfather's witness statement. For more on the Battle of Mount Street Bridge, go to www.storiesfrom1916.com. I'm Owen Cody. Thanks for listening.